Say It With Guitars. I'm your host, Pete Cornelius. Each episode, I'll be digging deep and getting to hang with some of Australia's finest guitar pickers, songwriters, producers, collectors, and makers. I look forward to bringing you these fun conversations and I hope you enjoy Say It With Guitars. Uh, hello out there, wonderful folks of podcast land. Hope you're all doing marvellously well, uh, enjoying the pre-Christmas buzz all the frantic shoppers, uh, all the mayhem of the Christmas season brings. And it looks like I've probably only got one more episode after today's podcast drop uh, for the season. I think, yeah, I think I'm going to finish with one more. So thanks very much, folks, for tuning in and supporting the show. It's been a whole lot of fun making it, so hopefully we can get season two off the ground. And a big thanks for all the guests for jumping on board and having some great conversations about guitars. If you've got any guest suggestions too, shoot them on through to uh, sayitwithguitarspodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on the socials too. All right, enjoy the chat. Before we crack into today's show, I'd like to shout out to our sponsor, Mr. Billy Tarrant from Tarrant Guitars. Billy's an amazing luthier and he makes some real sweet instruments. I'm lucky enough for him to have built me a double O size acoustic guitar, which I've dragged all around the country and it's sounding better than ever. So yeah, check out tarrantguitars.net.au. Tessie's one-stop custom workshop for custom-made guitars, all guitar repairs and services. Let's get into the show. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast today, Mr. Andrew Gregg. Andrew, how you doing? I'm good. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be in your house, in full of your lovely instruments and amplifiers. Um, do you feel hemmed in? Because I kind of do a little <laughs> bit. There's stuff everywhere, and it looks like it's about to fall in on us too. So. Yes, I am kind of cautiously like watching my peripheral vision in case something sort of starts creeping towards me. Um, but you know, I don't mind going out in this way if, if so be. You yeah. know, like a flying V on the head. That, you know. He died doing what he loved. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic, <laughs> which isn't being hit by guitars, it's being with guitars, isn't it, so? Yeah, it's slightly different. I wonder if insurance would still pay me out. Probably not. Well, it seems occupational, so I reckon they'd go okay, so. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I reckon you'd go all right. I reckon no. you'd go all right. Um, so here we are for the second time. I don't want to bring up the past too much, but um, we, we did record an episode already. I was editing it. It was a great little chat. Um but the the wonders of the of the technology that we etch this into um, decided to destroy it, and uh, so here we are again. It is. So we'll we'll see if we can recapture that magic. I think we, well, you know, a bit of chocolate cake helps. We'll be it right. does. It does. Thank you, Clary. Yeah. So so tell me, mm. Mr. Greg, <clears throat> what is it? What is it about guitars that um, attracts you? Like, how have you come to be surrounded by so many? wild and wacky instruments and devoting lots of your life towards such things? Look, it's look. first and foremost, it's everything, isn't it? You know, it's everything about them, their shape, their smell, their feel, their sound, just the, the I'm not going to say gruelling minutia, but just the minutiae about them, those tiny little details that make something special in a guitar is, is great and 
you know, one of the things that, that I've always liked about them is is there's a there's an innate um, tactile coolness about guitars that I've always really appreciated, even as a kid, I think. Um, and it, it, it's not sort of so much I want to be that guy to get the girls, I want to be that guy to get the guitars type yes. of thing. So <laughs> I've never been that guy. I've got the guitars <laughs> but it's, it's never been through being that guy. Yeah. But I've always, um, I always liked and appreciated guitars for their, you know, their sonic values. I, I think first and foremost, sometimes, sometimes they're 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 great looks and and sort of incredible vibe. And sometimes just because of you know of of what they do. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. And uh, having that extra little you know sort of sonic bow for your arrow type of speak. Uh huh. Yeah. And um, what was the what was the initial flame or the or the spark that generated this interest? I think for me, um, now there was a guitar in the house as a kid. It's under there under a bench, um, and so I would you know have a little planet every now and again. But growing up in the country as you did, but not in the same part of the country, and growing up on a farm meant a lot of times you were involved in a car journey that was going to be a long. Yeah. A long time. Yeah. Um, Dad very early on had a, a tape player in a car, like the, the XB Falcon Ute that Dad uh, had had a tape player in it, which was probably absolutely state-of-the-art at the time. And so you'd go somewhere and you would listen to tunes. Yeah. With Dad, with that car, it was Charlie Pride. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to uh, talk about Charlie's virtues or... Or, or whatever, but you know that was always those sorts of things were played, and I was exposed to guitar music in that way. Um, the other thing too, I guess, you know, growing up in the country, a lot of time in the shearing shed, and there was a lot of music played in that. Whether it was uh, yeah. fighting over what tape goes into the tape player, <laughs> or listening to a, a radio and being part of a massive chorus when you know a song that everyone knows comes on and you all sung, which yeah. I thought was always a lot of fun. So, yeah. but it's always been there. Um, you know, things very early on for me that sort of made me want to play guitar were, you know, seeing things like, I guess, you know, Mark Knopfler during that sort of phase before, uh, you know, breaking out really big time with Money for Nothing and that sort of thing and becoming, you know, a real global phenomenon then, I guess. I'm not saying that they weren't, you know, famous and well-loved prior to that point. Obviously they were, but that's about when they came under my radar. Um, seeing... Springsteen, I guess, as yeah. a young guy as well, um, for him becoming, you know, beyond being that, you know, superlative singer-songwriter that he's, I guess he's always been, but getting that commercial recognition and that sort of thing with Born in the USA. Yeah. And for me then, you know, delving back into that. But also there was always music in the house, you know. Mum and Dad were both big Beatles fans. Um, uh, so that was always played. Yeah. And we had unfettered access to a record player and a, big collection of records, so you, you played it. Yeah. And it yep. was always guitar stuff for yep. me. It's the stuff that I always listen to. It's especially being like an isolated um, area, like growing up in in an area where there's space and time and, you know, you have to create your own fun. Yeah. Um, you know, there's ways and means of, of, of doing that and I think by playing guitar that's a great way to not only entertain yourself for that amount of time but to sort of use it as a sharing yeah. Or a communal kind of tool, like yeah. to, to get together with other people, like or as that that mightn't have been my experience then, because 
look, uh, having a like a lot of connections on the east coast where you're from, I see a lot of music over there, and always did see it. Even as a kid, you'd sort of, I think I saw more people playing guitar over there than I did anywhere else. Right. And so there'd be people that be playing guitar there, but at Oatlands there are few people. Yeah. That were doing it. I remember seeing a, a guy that worked at the pool, Greg Slaw, playing a guitar while he was there and doing little things and sort of catching him see, like doing just like a guitar boogie type of thing yeah. and thinking, I reckon I can do that. Going home and uh, having a quick crack, crack at that and finding it. And then, you know, Greg lent me a guitar. I, I worked that out in a rudimentary way and, yeah. you know, that sort of got me going on that. I can yeah. remember seeing also about that time um, Robert Cray on, it might have been, I think there was a, a Saturday morning show called Sounds, I think it was, on one of the uh, one of the commercial networks that was playing things and Robert Cray uh, when he released Strong Persuader mm-hmm. and thinking that's really cool yeah, and liking that and thinking that's exactly what I want to sort of get into now. Um, and very soon, I, I'm not sure how it works out temporarily if it's true, but I remember seeing Crossroads at a similar time, uh, maybe right. just after, and yep. then that really accelerated yep. a love of that type of thing. Yeah. Soon after, got a copy of uh, that first um, Columbia Roberts Johnson mm-hmm. album mm-hmm. and listening and playing that, or playing that a lot and listening to that a lot. And then, uh, you know, by the time that 1991 rolls around and they do that that reissue yeah. with uh, all of the tracks and all of the, uh, you know, the alternate take stuff yeah. and being super, super ready for that. Yeah. Yeah, super ready for that. <laughs> so do you think that, that style of playing, like the, that early Delta style of Robert Johnson, was that, what do you think the appeal was there? Do you think it was just like nothing else you've heard on radio or was it just like the honesty of one man and his guitar, do you think, or what, what was it about that stuff that really kind of... Well, not being able to believe that one man can do all of that together and it's still, you know, we all know that he, he could and can now, but the fact that everyone else sort of, you know, has said, you know, that's it's, it's two guitar players, it's all that sort of thing, but but there was something so unbelievably pure about it yeah. in that way that it was... Um, there's a, there's an absolute, you know, there's there was nothing for him to hide behind. There's no, there's no sort of show going on behind him, and there's no flashing lights, so to speak. <laughs> it's just one guy yep. pouring it all in, in, yep. you know, whether it's a tiny hotel room or a, or yep. a, a facing the corner apparently. Facing the corner, I do like the, um, you know, what I guess being a real nerd on that that recent book by, you know, the incomparable Geraldine Wardlow and. Um, and Bruce Cornforth, that sort of, you know, debunking of Ry Cooter saying in that interview in around 1990 about, well, mm. what he's doing is corner loading, he's looking for a mid-range sound, whereas, you know, they say, well, his sound doesn't change a lot and, you know, he's in two diff- really different environments. So you can't really say that he's doing that. If he's sounding the same in, in San Antonio, he's, um, you know, he's in a room that's basically a little spot they've sequestered off in a warehouse, so to speak. Yeah. Like a or a holding area, if you want to call it that. So I, I really liked that idea, mm. and you know whether it was you know they say and that sort of thing that that the 
the wonderful Rikuda was debunking, you know, might actually be the real answer when he's going, he wasn't shy about what he was doing. He wasn't trying to protect himself. He's trying to get a sound and, yeah. look, Rai's, Rai's amazing, but I don't know. I, I think <laughs> but and I, I completely believed it and I've even, you know, tried recording myself and I can remember recording uh, having a four-track recorder in the early 90s, um, recording a, a folk quartet and getting the guitar players right into corners with microphones ah, okay. to try and do that. Yeah. And uh, look, the sound, you know, Rye was right. It really did do that. But, um, yeah, yeah I, I'm not sure about, uh, yeah, Johnson's motives for doing what he did, but I, I did like that. And all of that, like it's such a romantic idea, isn't it? So it was absolutely all of it. You just buy in and this died so young and that he was, you know, absolutely and utterly... I don't want to say the Bradman of what he did, but in a lot of ways that he was. I know that he's building on lots of things, but, you know. Yeah. I'm not saying that he invented how to play guitar, but, you know, if you take that he's, he's um, that, you know, via, even though Johnny Temple beat him to the crunch recording it, Johnny Temple has obviously learnt that sort of classic boogie guitar thing that we all do mm. um, through Johnson and that's, you know, that's kind of square one for that. So yeah, yeah. I'm... um. Yeah, there's there's something which is so so remarkable about that for me. Yeah, I not, buy into all of it. Yeah, <laughs> all of it. So, yeah, it definitely is an amazing story. No matter which angle that you come at it from, or, or which part of it is appealing to you, I think mm. the whole thing is just yeah, such an amazing time it must have been. Oh as yeah, well. like to hear that music or to just be a part of that movement. Yeah, you know, and influences from would have been Charlie Patton. I suppose yeah, as well. Absolutely, and, yeah, absolutely, um, yeah. Charlie Patton, Lonnie Johnson, Lonnie Johnson. Um, Sunhouse. Yeah. Uh, Skip James, whether he's seen him or just heard him. Um, all of those things, you know, coalescing into that. But in a look in a way in which, you know, Johnson was not only was he good at playing that, but he's he considers it all in a songwriting kind of way, whereas others are playing guitar and singing stuff. Johnson's actively composing, yeah, I think, which is the difference, you know. Um, I'm not saying the others weren't doing that in in a way, but he was doing it in a considered and um, discreet way that he was thinking about composition, thinking about songs and when you listen to them, you know, ending almost perfectly when he's doing his insurance takes, those takes for, to make sure that yeah, or, you know, if he's doing when he's taking instruction to play something faster or slower or, or, or whatever happens to that, he's uh, he's remarkable in the way. And, and that isn't just, look, I guess you can't discount based upon his virtuosity and sort of genius on the instrument that it's not just the genius kicking in, but I think it's a more considered and practised thing that he's doing compared yeah. to the other guys. Yeah. The other guys would have been absolutely fantastic at holding a crowd and I'm sure that Johnson was. Mm. Um, there's no two ways about it. All of those sort of interviews where, which, you know, might be a little bit push-polled, so to speak, but they all talk about him controlling a crowd and being fantastic. Yeah. But the guys like House and Patton and yeah. uh, they would have been probably a level above that perhaps. I don't know, but it's lovely and to th- think about. And I think they would have also been coming from a background of an accompanist as well, like mm. so playing with other people, whereas I think Johnson was more... This is what I do. This is me. I don't. I don't yeah. know if there's any history of him playing with other people, but I, I think he undoubtedly did, right. but not in a way that was like you know when you get uh, 
Well, I guess, you know, the, the sort of classic ones would be, I guess, Marty and, and uh, was it Sun Sims that played with him a lot? And you get Tommy Honey Johnson. Honey Boy Edwards as well, maybe? Honey Boy Edwards was probably. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, Honey Boy and, and Muddy, you're saying? Mm. No, and, and Robert. Don't know. Mm. I think Honey Boy might say that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure. I, I really don't know. Yeah. I really don't know. I, I should I should really, yeah, you'd think that being a bit of a nerd on that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll pass that one off to, to Skip Sale wherever he is. Yes, maybe I should get Skip on the show. Do that. I'd love to have a chat with him on that. He's, he's, yeah, he's, uh, he's, um, you know, a wonderful friend, an incredible player, and, uh, you know, like me, um, quite that guitar hound as well. He's, um, he's, uh, yeah, he knows his onions very, very well. <laughs> does skip. Yeah, I always enjoy when a for sale post comes up from Skip. It's, it's always an instrument of much desire. It is. Yeah. It is, isn't it? So, and uh, and much vintage. He's, and he's, <laughs> he likes things that you are. Can, you can taste the years, years so. old. Yeah. Mm. No, a lot of centurions in, so to speak, in his arsenal there. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. So, did you break that stuff down and and try and recreate that style of guitar playing? Like, was that of interest to you, or did yeah, you? Yeah, it was. Of- Look, it really was, and um, I because I didn't grow up around other guys that were doing this. Um, and because by the time that the reissue stuff came out, there are enough interviews out there that talk about different tunings. And I'm like, well, what do you mean you tune your guitar differently? And so I can remember uh, a good friend of mine saying, well, here's how you do open G. And, you know, you can kind of, if you tune your guitar to a chord, you can play just across the strings and it'll make the chord. I'm like, really? That seems easy. (laughs) Of course it's not. But, um, you know, one of the things that, and I know that my uh, my very close friend Marcus will attest to this, that when I've found that out, I can remember in a, a house that we shared on the West Tamer Highway here in Launceston, he was uh, on a, a fitness kick and me going from not being able to play slide guitar to being able to play quite passable approximations of things going on in slide guitar mm-hmm. while he was out jogging. Now, I'm, I'm not a great guitar player by any stretch. I get along okay, um, I, but that was something that I picked up really quickly. I've always been a guy that can pick something up kind of quickly. I know there are plenty of people in my circle that are shaking their heads going, you're as thick as shit, Andrew, you do not <laughs> pick things up. Can you pick up the basic stuff for us, please? But that came to me really quickly. Right. And I can, for a long time there, I would do a lot of that and almost live for slide guitar before it was, I guess, what it is now. And yeah. I play very little slide now, it's much to my detriment, I think so. Yeah. I did a lot of it. I think I don't know if my sense of pitch has gotten better or my slide playing has gotten poorer, but it's, some, <laughs> it's somewhere between the two lights, the truth. It's a tricky one too because to play slide successfully, I think, on a particular instrument, it needs to be set up for slide. Yes. You know, you, you can... If you have a nice light touch and perhaps a glass slide or something that's mm. smooth, you, you can get away with a low action and play slide, but mm. the success rate is, you know, smaller and it's it's more of a finesse as opposed to like, you know, tuning a guitar with high action and just wailing an yeah. Elmore James sort of 12th fret thing. and yeah, Having it that, yeah. So Working at that 12th fret. But open all, fret, yeah. open area vector, and then to the fifth fret for your. <laughs> That's right. 
for your thoughts. So yeah. yeah. So um, and I think because you know we we do like to have an arsenal of guitars. It's we do. Um, I th- I think finding or dedicating one instrument to that particular style is is tricky. You know, and mm. I know that that shouldn't be because we have the choice of of instruments. But for me, I, I like to. Um, not just dedicate an instrument to slide, perhaps. Like maybe mm. have the ability to knock the action up mm. quickly mm. and then mm. go for it. Um, I know, do you find that you have dedicated instruments for certain styles or are you kind of like they all do things? Look, look they all do things. I, I, I've been guilty of having, like, you know, most guitar players trying to dedicate a cheaper instrument to slide duties yeah. um, or something which is probably through them being cheap. Like I've got a, you know, a couple of Dan Electros that I've always kind of jacked the action up on and I haven't got to the point of, you know, raising the nut a little bit or anything with them, but I should do it. And I'm guilty of trying to play slide stuff on uh, an electric guitar that's set up for electric guitar playing and uh, mm. trying to be as light of touch. Uh, I haven't done it for an age, but we used to um, we used to try and end a set and often a night with uh, something like Seven Nation Army. And, uh, you know, so I'd be constantly shouting, slow down, let me tune, <laughs> let me tune. I'm not there yet. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd sort of be rushing, tuning away, using a terrible floor tuner. I'm not going to use one of those again for that. And, uh, you know, by the time that, and it being an idiot too, you know, by the time that you've, you've tuned your, uh, tuned it to open A, you know, your, your A string's now down somewhere about... I don't know, G equals, well, your G's in some kind of A equals 417 hertz style tuning. So, yeah. you know, when you go for that big A at some point, it's it's just <laughs> wrong. So, And I should be taking a slide guitar for that sort of thing. Yeah. But I'm also, you know, there are a couple of things that we, we do that I'm playing a little bit of slide in uh, standard tuning mm-hmm. and uh, just hoping that it's going to work on the guitar that I've chosen for. Yeah. And sometimes... It's a win sometimes. It's a, it's a shocking loss. So yeah, I remember when I was younger, um, raising the action. I had this torch three three five. I copy. remember that guitar, that brown, brown one. Yeah, that was a, was a ripper. It was a ripper. Yeah, I, um, and that. you sounded great on it too. Well, it was a cool guitar, um, and I, I just did a lot of miles on it, and I didn't. I played it fingerstyle for a long time, but I, I wanted a dedicated slide instrument. I remember mm. seeing Dave Hull. We supported Dave Hull years ago and oh, he, had a, he had a walnut yeah. brown sort of yeah, three, yeah, yeah. Five, five maybe, uh, uh, three, three, five. I, I can't remember but I do remember seeing him and possibly yourself at I think the Batman Faulkner. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yes. I remember seeing and hearing him on that guitar. I was like, wow, I, I need a humbucking semi-hollow yeah. yeah. guitar for this sort of style of playing. And I found one at a pawn shop in, uh, in Surfer's Paradise when we were there once on one of our little family holidays, mm. picked it up for like two hundred bucks. Um, Excellent. And but the action wasn't great, so I was like, "Perfect, this is going to be my slide guitar." And I put like little strips of paper under the nut. You know, oh yeah, that old trick. That old trick. <laughs> that raised, you know, got the bridge up. It was, it was happy days. I had a lot, a lot of fun on that guitar. Yeah. Um, Just on, on on that, I do remember getting a a Guild D forty, so like a Guild's version of a Martin D eighteen. From a guy, and he said, "Oh, look, it's just never sounded right." And um, I, it sounded kind of okay. It had a, a neck repair, 
which um, I don't think ruins guitars. Some of them don't seem changed. Some of them do seem changed. I think it's, yeah, yeah. one of those things which I'm, it, it never puts me off but obviously you always consider it. And uh, he'd, uh, he'd, he had a nutter that was like you could move with your fingers in the, in the, the bridge itself yep. and underneath it was about six strips of, um, of meadow leaf margarine container <laughs> to, to build it up. Great. So I am a fan of the uh, of that sort of bodge on a guitar. So. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, young Andrew, that dickhead, was guilty of a lot of those kind of capers. Well, the things you do sometimes just to get you through the gig, like sometimes an, an accident will happen or the guitar will somehow get damaged so you, you just you make it work for that night. Or yeah. For, yeah, yeah, yeah. But sometimes you think, oh, it's it's okay, it's working. This little yeah, <laughs> this little hack I've done is kind of no one knows. Yeah, yeah. and then it just st- sticks. It just you yeah. just don't get around to changing things sometimes. No, absolutely. And and th- that way in which we fix things in a way which we might consider temporary uh, that lasts forever. I, I think there's an absolute art to that. Yeah. Whether it's on a motorcycle, whether it's on an amp, whether it's probably shouldn't be doing it on amps, but I do, um, <laughs> or a guitar. It well, just sort of makes it work. You know, yeah. I've I've uh, I've probably still got guitars here where I've uh, fixed a nut with a bit of baking soda and super glue. Um, that works really well. Yeah. Um, or whether I've the the other thing that I've done on quite a few Gibsons where the bridge has collapsed, where the Tudomatic has bent down because you know you've been running a fairly high sort of tension on it is just to get into a vice with a couple of nuts and yep. and tighten it up until it's straightish and uh, being happy with that that it's straight so. Yep. Yeah, probably shouldn't do that, <laughs> kids at home. So, but it does work. It'll get you out of a fix. So. Absolutely, yes. There's always a way to get you out of a fix. Um, yeah, yeah, there is, there is. But those those sorts of things, those little ways in which you make things that you've got work for what you want, I think are, you know, they're at the heart of what we do, aren't they? Sometimes I agree. That's what makes iconic instruments. You know, people yeah. talk about. You know, any, a particular instrument that belongs to a particular player, and, and the way that that instrument of, has evolved with that player, and, and the Absolutely, things that yeah. they modify or, or, or enhance, or perhaps um, <laughs> the opposite of enhancing. Yeah, um, ruin. Ruin. <laughs> well, not 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 so much. Like when you consider is um, who's the guy from Free with the three three five with the strap pickup in the middle? Oh, Alvin Lee. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Alvin Lee. From when 10 you years consider- after. Yeah, that's right. Yes, yeah. Isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful sort of modification? That yeah, like this no, would have made go, great oh, sense. But oh. you hear him play and go, "Well, cool. He yeah. sounds great." He does. I don't <laughs> think him chain, sticking that pickup in it is why it sounds great. No. But um, and I, it is his. So yeah. Um, but I, I guess to a different point of view as well, when you see Pete Townsend with that rack of. Um, Les Paul Deluxes and the ones that he's put the Damasio Super Distortion in the middle of mm. and that modification, that I like. Sure. And I, I guess it's the Townsend thing because Townsend is, you know, he's one of the men for me. He's incredible. Yeah. Part of it is, and, and I guess I guess to get your, back to your original question, a lot of my guitars unashamedly are me buying a guitar that, someone that I love who's mm-hmm. playing is buying and whether it's me having a Neil Young uh, like Les Paul Deluxe over there and having the 
you know, the Firebird pickup in the bridge and having the the peanut in the neck with a chrome cover and a handmade and aluminium Bigsby. pick guard, the Bigsby, yeah. all of those things is all because of that. It yep. does sound great and it is in that tribute way that I've done it. Yeah. Um, but those sort of but to return to Pete, I've very, very nearly, you know, pulled the router out on <laughs> yeah, right. on like a seventies Les Paul Deluxe to do that. So wow. I had a Les Paul Deluxe which is uh gone through a few hands and pops up like a bad penny every now and again. It had a horrific neck repair on it. Right. Um, like stable but to the point of um, you know, there was a lot of uh putty in it to sort of fill in the broken bits and it had some case burn and it had a bit of this and, you know, I, I owned it. I, I uh, In my international guitar catch and release program that I run, <laughs> that went to a mate of mine, Adam, then came back when he was after another Lester because it was a very heavy one and I very nearly did the, uh, did the Pete on that because I probably wouldn't use it in the way that, I certainly couldn't use it in the way that Pete does but, um, yeah. you know, just that sort of iconic look, the number on it, just that whole utilitarian thing that Pete kind of, yeah. you know, that backflip from going from being, you know, absolutely concerned with fashion and, and things to, okay, white boiler suit, Doc Martens, guitars with numbers on them. What guy? <laughs> Isn't that amazing? So, yes. Yes. Um, and some would debate his uh, smashing of instruments though, like, and, and the amplifications. He's... Ending up in millions of parts. Like his, his kindness to I his instruments. I do cringe every time I see a bit of footage of, yeah. of that. Um, yeah. I don't mind seeing him smash like... Like when you know that some of them have been pieced together just for that. Yeah. And are being, you know, super glued back together, so to speak, just yes. for the final song. Yeah. I don't necessarily mind. If he's got like a... Something which you might consider like the there's he smashed a, a like a Vox hollow on was it the Smothers Brothers show or something like yeah, that? Yeah, right. Yeah, I don't mind that. I'm sure there are guys now <laughs> that absolutely cringe at that, but yeah. yeah, that was a that is and was a you know a bit of a packing crate special, and yep. he would have seen it as being something disposable and yeah. But you know when you see the um, whether you like them or not, those the particularly the early stuff, the Rickenbackers. And uh, which are very fine, very smashable instruments. <laughs> very smashable. Yeah, you can almost sort of You're when speaking you. Speaking of beer. Oh no, no, no. Okay. But when you see them, um, you sort of like when you play one of those, you can almost sense the brokenness in them already. Yeah. It's 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 in there waiting to be released. <laughs> they are quite fine in a lot of ways. Yeah. They yeah. are very fine and delicate. But it is hard, isn't it? When you see Henrix bashing on those things, when you see Steve Ray Vaughan standing on num- that number one strat, yeah. uh, that live at El Macambo and sort of picking it up and rocking backwards and forwards on it. Oh, I know. Yeah. Don't you just kind of, oh, part of me just, mate, can you not? <laughs> can't get yourself a die-on strat or something for yeah. that. Yeah. But no, he's, yeah. In the moment. In the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, back to Townsend for a sec. I, I yes. showed um, my, my son, Mac, um, a bit of footage because we're talking about because he's been playing a bit of guitar lately. Awesome. He's been loving it. Um, awesome. So, you know, we'll go and plug in and have a jam together and he just, yeah. I just open tune oh, fantastic. stuff for him and he just... That's what I need to do. Puts yeah. his fingers here and there and doesn't make any difference because he's just like <laughs> not he's pressing just, the out hard enough. But yeah. He's anyway. just lying in with the, with the right hand. Yeah. 
Um, but I showed him some Townsend windmills the other day because he's, you know, got the rock moves going. I was like, mate, yeah. you got to get some, Windmill. some windmills. So he's like obsessed with windmills at the moment. He's yeah. walking around going, oh, just my shoulder sore. It's like, mate, you've got to take it easy on the windmills. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. I can remember <laughs> uh, at a gig a while back, we've, we've every now and again, and it's quite indulgent to do it, self-indulgent to do it, but... Um, We'll do I Can't Explain. Because I've got a Rickenbacker 12, I'll, I'll use that. I can remember wind, trying to windmill on that, sort of bringing the guitar forward. And, look, if Alan Roth's listening, do a how to how to windmill on a guitar thing because it's not easy. It's not <laughs> it's not something which is instinctive, is it? It's it's quite hard and I should spend more time with it. It is, yes, that's it. The guitar go needs low. to be at a certain length, doesn't it? Like it's got to go low and you've got to kind of, I think you've got to get a bit of a knee behind it so that you're kind of bringing your arm around. Yeah, right. And... I can't do the big full windmill. It's I just can't. Upstroke, isn't it? It's like he's. Yeah. It's like an anti-clockwise. Yeah. It is. Thing. And doing one, but I was doing it. Uh, you know, as far as my, I'm concerned, uh, clockwise from the front, clockwise right. stage right, so to speak. <laughs> I've hit the strings. Picks hit the roof. It's gone out of tune. Yeah. And it's yeah. Look, it's it, it's it's not a great look. So, but um. You know, when you see him do it and, like, what stagecraft? That's just, Absolutely. isn't it great? Yeah. And the, the whole bird thing with the feedback. Yeah. Ah, oh, what a man. Yeah. And just that, I guess, you know, not being a technically gifted guitarist and not being the most nimble of finger, someone who's doing just solid, rock-solid rhythm stuff, again, something I can't do, but that rock-solid thing that he did and, you yeah. know, having him as a... I guess, you know, while he's, he does play a lot of things that are brilliantly guitar stuff, um, you know, knowing that it's all going on with, with the ox behind him, mm-hmm. all of that stuff is going to be done there. Yeah. What a player. Yeah. What a band. Yes. What a band. Yeah. Hence the high watt. Well, the high watt's also, the high watts are, are a Gilmore thing probably first yes. and foremost. But, yeah. you know, when I plug in that white Townsend SG into that and, Give it some volume when nobody else is in the house or the neighbourhood. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's pretty empowering sort of thing to do. One must do it in one's lifetime. I it's think. good, you know. Yeah. Um, if they didn't weigh a ton, I'd take it out everywhere. But um, yeah, that that high watt cab there that uh that went from the car to there and <laughs> and nowhere else <laughs> hasn't moved since. Hasn't moved since. So and the combo uh, I did take to a few gigs. Uh, in fact, uh. Our, our mutual friend, your brother-in-law, Charlie, um, I took it to a gig where his band were, were playing as well and used it for that. And right. uh, it was quite wet of foot and I can remember standing outside, uh, outside this shearing shed and it was very cold and very wet and standing still of the amp and because of the, that amp is, like, that's, uh, I think they're like 38 kilos. That is single, that the one I schlepped from Melbourne? It is. It is. It's, no. no, no, it's a different one, is it? No, the yeah, it actually, it was the one that you slept from Melbourne. Right, wasn't that? Didn't that have some gravity about it? <laughs> yeah. But I've I've had it up in my arms because I couldn't carry it with one hand. I've had it up like this, two hands underneath the amp, right. and for a single twelve, that was a hundred watt combo. Yes, they're like thirty eight kilos, nearly forty kilos for a single twelve amp. So they're they're double a deluxe reverb. Absolutely, and standing still. And because it was wet of foot, I've just started sliding down the hill. 
standing up with this amp like I'm on a conveyor belt or something. Yep. So I thought I'm not going to do this too much and I think that that amp lived in the car for about a week because of the carry back down the quite steep mm-hmm. sort of backyard that we lived in. And I did, Claire said, are you, are you worried about getting stolen? I thought if they want to steal that and carry it somewhere, they've earned yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's off to them. <laughs> they've earned it, yeah. I, I salute them. They'll be easy to find. They'll, yeah. they'll be the guys that look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. So. Yeah, all like hunched over and... All hunched over, yeah. yeah. That's it. Growling in pain. Yes, you know, check, check all the chiropractors first. <laughs> Don't worry about going to cash converters. Yeah. Go to a, go to a chiropractor first. Um. So, yeah, speaking of, like, Townsend and Gilmore, so just having a quick scan around the room, yeah, there definitely is instruments that are iconic to yeah. um, particular players when you look around. So the, the the Gilmore Strat's pretty easy to pick out there. Gilmore's yep. always been a big sort of touchstone for me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, one of the things I've always liked, you know, I guess as a, you know, 15-, 16-, 17-year-old, you know, beyond the Robert Johnson stuff that kicked in around the same time, there was a real point where I listened to that almost seemingly exclusively. It was really, you know, I listened to that a lot. Yep. And I, I still come back to it now. So, you know, I, I love him as a player. Like he's an incredible singer as well, which yep. um, I think, I don't think it gets lost, but, you know, obviously he's um, like just that sort of tasteful thing and how does somebody make a you know, a pentatonic scale sound so different to what everybody else is doing. And he's um, he's never in a hurry. You know, like his guitar mm. playing is so melodic and mm. sensible yet inspiring and um, honest and heartfelt, you know. like Yeah. To, to get to, to ring as much out of those minimal notes. Yeah. I think he's definitely an inspiration to guitar players. I can remember being absolutely and utterly confused in a conversation with a music nerd about, well, and saying something like, well, obviously, you know, Pink Floyd are heaps better than um, than Steely Dan. And they're going, what, you really think that? And I'm going, yeah. He says, well, why do you think that? He says, because they are. <laughs> and he was like, oh, but, and, and he was all about the, that, shitty yock rock type of thing and all of that, I guess, overly self-considered stuff that, that, that Sylvie, that St- Sylvie, Steely Dan do. I don't like them enough to even get their name fucking right, to be honest. <laughs> um, but that's, yeah. And again, I, I'm not saying that um, you know, there's a point where, where musicality and virtuosity uh, can meet, I think, and sometimes, and it's rare to have both, mm-hmm. you know, Um I would rather listen to Neil Young than, I don't know, Ingvay Malmsteen or something like that. You know, I, I can appreciate what the dude's doing but yep. and it's virtuosic by all means but it's not musical to me. Yeah. And, you know, there are very few people that are that rare sort of heady mix of the two, you know. Um, our mutual friend Jeff Lang is one that I would put firmly in the camp where, you know, he's melodic, he's virtuosic, he's musical in a way which yep. a lot of people are. Shannon Bourne, someone... Another mutual friend, someone who was firmly into that for me as well. Yeah. Um, and that's a, a a rare thing for me. That sort of musical listenability is is key over virtuosity. Yeah. You know, it's uh, 
you know, if I wanted to listen to something fast, I'd stick a fucking sewing machine on, or <laughs> yeah. I'd, um, you know, I'd turn yeah. on, I'd turn on my live or something yes. like that. So it's it's yeah. something where, um, yeah, that's sort of where it comes to for me. It's a tricky balance point, though, isn't it? Like, there's a real oh, threshold, damn, isn't it? Yeah, between a musical honesty or, or taste, you f- or yeah. and then being great on because everyone wants to be good on their instrument. Everyone wants to be at a point where you can play without having to think too much. Um, mm. and, and we all get the impression that you need to, you know, play lots of notes to be good or to yeah. play all these bop chops, you know, like, yeah. or just like to be able to be free on your instrument, um, and to yeah. oh, yes. impress ourselves and each other. And perhaps, I, I don't know, like it's, it's, it's a real balance. Like I remember reading a, a thing in guitar player when I was a kid, I think it was on Eddie Van Halen talking about how he'd try and learn as much as he could and then just try and forget it. You know, like having the ability yeah. to have skills yeah. and chops but then going, okay, let's erase all that, try and keep the muscles intact yeah. <laughs> um, but but sort of yeah. back it off to where it's musical and yeah, and not yeah. Um, alienating 99%. I guess, of yeah, I guess that's that's sort of where it's at. There's a... There's such a fine line with that, and it is. And look, it's it's part of that mystery, isn't it? It is. Maybe it is the mystery. Is yeah. is you know how much, how much of that do you do you need? So, and uh, where's the point where um, that virtuosity um, expunges almost the the musicality? Um, you know, a couple of fantastic players that you'll sort of listen to. Um, I won't name them because you know they're they're great players, but. You'll see them do their own stuff and you'll think, mm, uh, and I, I'm not talking about people that will be mutual friends of ours or anything, but people who are, you know, great name players in Australia and in the US, et cetera, that you think, I don't like what you're doing there, I really don't. I can see that there's a lot of craft in it, yeah. but um, you'll see them in interviews and they might be playing stuff from their influences as a kid and you'll go, now I really get what you're doing. I really love that you can do all of this stuff. This is incredible. Yeah. Here's my stuff. Yeah, I'm back off it again. <laughs> Can you go back to covering Chet Atkins, please? Yes, yeah. That type of thing. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's a funny old line. Um, I, I think as a player, you, you just have to be honest to yourself. Hey? you got to, I guess, have the maturity to think, mm-hmm. okay, I'm happy with what I'm doing. Um, I might stand mute on that. That could be that could be an answer for you because, look, yeah. as a – look, I – I, uh, I play what's been described not by me as a shitty bar band and kind of we are and that's great but we have a lot of fun and we do okay um, and I, I think we're all at a point where we've realised that um, not in a defensive way but there are enough shit songs in the world with us adding more to the pile um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, we're there to have fun. I, I'm not a songwriter and player in that sense, you know. I'm about having a bit of fun and... Yeah. Look, I guess you know I'm I'm more the guitar collector end and that sort of thing of what I do. So yeah. I'm not sure it's a question that I can really answer with any authority. Mm. But I'm very keen to hear what you think about it because you are in that sphere. Sorry to turn this into the Andrew <laughs> Greg <laughs> interview. So tell me, Pete, what so do you think? <laughs> it's funny. I've had I've had um, a few people comment saying. Oh, I want to interview you for for one of these podcasts. Maybe at the end of the season, I'll I'll turn the microphone over and fantastic. Have a little chit chat about what I. You could just cut together that little bit in there for me, or yeah, okay. I'll I'll pop over to the coast and yeah, 
right. I could I could read out the questions in my funny Kermit the Froggy voice for you. <laughs> We've got um, Shannon from Geelong here asking. Yes. <laughs> we've, got, we've got a, a reader. Want to know what gauge strings you use? <laughs> yes. Anyway. Um, so, well, sorry, Andrew. What was the question? You, you put me off. You guard. asked the question. I, I've just evaded the answer. It was about people being invested in their playing or in their yep. musicality or in their technique. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on what stage you're at as a player and as a as a person. I think um, mm. when you're in that influential period, say between ten and twenty, right? Mm. You respond, you're, you're absorbing, you're learning, your ability to, to get all that done is so much more efficient than it is, you know, 30 mm. plus. Mm. Um, so I think I think that's where you get your that, – that's, that's the time where you sort of create a lot about who you are as a player and you get your influences and you sort of – you have to get some skills up. You know, you have to mm. be able to play your instrument and to, to do what – to mm. say – what you want to say or to put a feeling across that you want. And it really, yeah, it's such a tricky one because, you know, sometimes a songwriter will play these crazy chords that a guitar player will never think of because the songwriter is plucking out notes that don't fall under the fingers very easily. But maybe yeah. that's what they've, they're hearing. They might be coming from a piano background or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's yeah, such a – I think it's a great – a great topic, and I'm going to try and probably ask that more often on the on the podcast. Yeah. Just yeah, the, the balance between your instrument and musical versus you know virtuosic yeah performance. Yeah, yeah, I think it's I don't know. Yeah, I'm just sorry. I'm staring at the basement right now. I'm just sort of thinking yeah. about which one. One basement. <laughs> yeah, there's a pair there now. There is. There's a pair in there. The um <laughs> the. The top one is uh, myself and a, a very good friend have that in, in concert, so to speak, and the bottom one is, look, that might be the piece of gear that I've had for the longest. Um, that one I got, ah, oh, it was 90s. I'm, it was in the 90s. It was probably about 97. Mm-hmm. Trading post? No, that no. one, we'll get back to the trading post. I, <laughs> I, I do want to talk about the trading okay. post, but um, that was in Hobart in Southern Music. Uh-huh. And uh, I'd bought a twin reverb from there that um, I traded a I traded a Music Man uh, two ten sixty five in in my catch and release program. The two the Music Man was uh, ex Billy Whitten. Shout out to Billy, he's mm-hmm. an incredible player and a lovely man. And um, was was pointed out to me by my guitar teacher when I was about sort of 16, 17 as being the best guitar player in Tasmania as far as he was concerned uh, by Jason Bazant. And he said, you know, Billy's one of those guys that it's like he's almost um, like he's got a lick in his mind and he's going to point it out towards you and he'll just sort of lean in towards you and look at you and point this lick <laughs> towards you. And he said, you watch him play. And I, I had the pleasure of being a... You know, in Billy's company for a lot of time when he was playing and chatting and he was really, really kind to me and gave me a little bit of a peek behind the curtain with a lot of stuff that goes on with his playing and yep. I'm really, uh, really grateful for that. But the basement, uh, I'd bought one there and said, if any other old valve amps come up, please let me know because I'd gotten onto valve amps early in my uh, my career and that one came up and... Um, 
I went down thinking, well, I'll try and bargain them down to, to something because it was a thousand bucks, which seems stupidly low now. And uh, going and turning it up to 10 and playing it, and it was just this, you know, fantastic, d- despite having, you know, terrible speakers in it, um, it was just this glorious sound. And I thought, well, there's that gone, isn't it? So, you know, I handed my money over. It's it's stayed with me ever since, and it's it's such a great amp. And I, I, I do take it out, as you can see. It's. Um, Did it? Look like that when you bought it, or is that from you using it? Do you think, or is it? Just... It was it was painted black, and look, I I, oh. I always um, but it's 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 actually it's a kind of it it is like a bit of a it's not a unicorn, but it's a fairly rare variant of this. It is it is the Beatles amp, as you could say. A lot of Beatles stuff was recorded on a six G six C basement, not mm-hmm. B. This is a later version before they stopped making them. This one is August. Uh, 64 from memory. I um, It's one of the greatest sounding amps that I've come across. It sounds fantastic. I know that all 6G6A or 6G6A, 6G6B, and now that I know about 6G6C, they all sound great. They just sound good. This one to me sounds just perfect. And when you take it out with a spring reverb and um, just maybe a, a, a dirt pedal, you're going to sound great all night. And I love when I get to go, get to play at gigs where the room's big enough to take it in and the stages are well appointed enough that I can do so. And it's worth, you know, that extra sort of carry that you have with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I like these amps so much that I, I recently bought, um, a couple of years back, bought a basement from uh, a good friend of ours that had been turned into a, a combo. Oh, so the yeah, same yeah. version of the amp, but it had been combo-wise. Was that um, Sweet Baby James from Adelaide? I think he sold it to Shannon yeah. perhaps. And then... then, yeah, so it is that one. Yep. It is that one and I thought, yes, it's going to be a little bit different because, you know, it had a a flat logo on it, I think, mm-hmm. and had a, was in a, a thing and I thought, well, this is, this is great. I'll have two. I'll have different ones to compare to. That one there is serial number BP120055. The one that I got from Shannon was BP120053. <laughs> so not only is it the same amp, it's the, it's like yeah. a couple less. However, the interesting and very, very nerdy thing about it is um, you can hear the people turning off already, can't you, is that this one has the rotary selector for the international voltage. Okay. Yep. The Shannon the one. export model or whatever. The export one had it. Inside, like the old school ones, where you pull Multi- out a wire tap. and plug it into something else. Yeah, it had that. Okay, so I'm not saying this is, and I, I think that I've seen ones on the good old internet that um, I don't know why that one that's two serial numbers apart is like that because I've seen yeah. earlier amps with the rotary selector. Mm-hmm. Now I've seen amps that are earlier that are the they call a tuxedo, which is black cosmetics. Um, but the white knobs like this. Yep. I'm actually wondering whether Fender painted them now. I don't know any different because I know that there are ones that are in black Tolex. Mm-hmm. I don't know if this one's been recabbed. perhaps. I don't know. I, I don't really care, to be honest. Yeah. But the cab is how I've dated it because of the, the little date code that's on the the, sti- the the tube chart inside it. That's yep. how I've dated it. Right. Um but maybe, just maybe, um, 
uh, Andrew's uh, stripped, has spent a lot of time and sniffed a lot of chemicals stripping paint <laughs> off an amp that Fender actually painted because they needed to get him looking black. Yeah. I don't know. But well, anyway. Could have been in that transition period, hey, because... Yeah, the yeah. 64, 65 and is look, when they went to the... They weren't thinking about nerds in the future. They were thinking about selling stuff and, Absolutely. you know, they've got the Beatles using amps, so why let's keep making a few of these in this colour. Uh, we're transitioning to this because everyone likes a new cool black look. Yeah. We've still got a heap of those chassis and transformers and things that's just pumping through that way. You know, yeah. they're, they're making sandwiches. They might as well be making sandwiches and using up all of the ham. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's going yeah. on there. So. Maybe it did come out black from, I don't know, did it look like it was a professional black? You couldn't tell paint? that it wasn't meant to be black until you looked, right? until you pulled the back covers off. Okay. Yeah, mm. you couldn't tell. Interesting. So, yeah, it was. it's, it's interesting and uh, I hope there's some nerd out there that knows more about this than me. So I had a similar experience. Um, Jeb Cardwell from, yeah, yeah. from Melbourne. Um, we were playing a show together with the Backward Creatures with Squire oh, and, and Tim. And um, he was telling me about his Strat. He's got a, an 80s um, 62 reissue. Yeah. Same guitar as I've got. I've got an 80s yep. 62 reissue. I've got the 57 there. That's like an 85. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Great guitars. Yeah. I'm really happy with mine. I've. Um, what did I do? I traded something in for it. Down at Solders in Hobart. Ah, oh, good old Solders. <laughs> anyway, um, he, because both of our strats are black, but he he took the black off his because he thought it was a an aftermarket someone sprayed. Yeah, I've done that. I haven't taken it off, but I've had the thought. He said it was really challenging because because it had like a cream sort of primer or undercoat on it, and he got it down to that, but it's really thin. I said that. Yeah. So I think he thought the black was... Well, I don't know, maybe his guitar had been painted, but yeah. I showed him mine. He's like, oh, maybe <laughs> maybe I spent all this time and energy taking the black off when it was actually meant to be on there. Yeah, I, I had a... Um, I had a... What is it? What was it? A, like about an 84, 85 black 62 reissue. Mm-hmm. And uh, there were... Underneath the chips, it was Fiesta Red. You see a few chips here and there, yeah. But the like the telltale, which made me know that it was factories. Do, do you want to grab the strat? I'll just show sure. you really quickly. And sorry, nerds, for the for, for actually, no, nerds, I know that you'll appreciate this. The telltale that makes it made it right is this. No, oh, it's fallen off. This here is <laughs> the polish from the factory, and it's always in the spring cover. And they've uh-huh. most often got a um. A little uh, inspection, like a you know, little sticky dot in yes. there, right. and if it's there, you know it's factory, or that someone who's really deep faking it. But yeah, that's what made it ah, factory. Okay. So I, I I know that that one's that, and you'll know that these are going to be not because of the really low serial number, but this sort of offset by a spidey was what they were mostly doing at that point as well as yours. You might be able to see, ah, see the cool. seam on yours. They did a. An offset body there, but they are absolute crackers. These ones, they go really, really well. This is a bit of an unloved sort of puppy. This one was, and uh, this was you know, bought into my my guitar pound uh, a good ten years ago, I think, as a an unloved. And to the yep. person that had it, they didn't value this one at all. I'd say, and uh, 
Well, by like, the look of the relic job, they didn't love it very much. Well, I, I, I think the relic job has come from it being in a shitty case. Oh, really? Yeah, because there are a couple of spots, particularly here, where you can see a little bit of fur from, uh, uh, you know, the way that Nitro react to a, a yep. shitty fur case. And I think they've tried to knock it off and then turn it into a relic. You can see a kind of bit of finish burn from that type of thing there as well. Yeah. And uh, that still feels a little bit sort of... Squishy. Squishy there. So mm. so it's kind of like that. It's also um, some genius has had a, um, I presume, a roll and pick up on it as well at some point. But it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Because it's uh, it's just a tiny hole, so. Yeah. And it's just another story, another part of its charm and the cigarette burn in the, in the top there. I think that's intentional too. I reckon someone's uh, gone a bit of Eric Clapton on that. <laughs> I think you're right. Wonderful things. They are indeed. But those, yeah, those little sort of things where you, well, it's, it's you're kind of picking up things as you go along and you're just learning something new with almost everything that you do with these guitars. Yeah. And uh, like the Moz right beside you there, I'm learning about that today. And that had has me and a lot of people stumped at the moment. But it's I've I've through a, through the help of a guy in Sydney, I've I've found out that that one is where it should be and what it is. And now I know that it's uh what is what it is. And I think we've both shared on that journey today, myself and uh, Frank, his name. But it's um yeah, you, you're always going to pick up a tiny little thing if you. If you are, you know, catching and releasing as I do. Yep. I've noticed they've got the zero fret. Do you know, I was, mm. I was talking to John Parsons who makes uh-huh. guitars here in Launceston. Yeah, yeah. Or great... in Devonport now, isn't he? Making guitars there? Oh, nothing. I interviewed him um, a couple of months ago and he's living out in Lonnie. Yeah, okay, excellent, yes. On that side of town, like Riverside sort of area. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I've picked up parts from him in the last decade. Yeah. Um, Making some yeah. really beautiful guitars. And he's, one of his features is the zero fret. Yeah. Quite a, I don't know, I never really thought much about it. And I, the, the more I play guitars that have them, there's not many that do it, but I know that Gretsch did them for a yeah, while. Yeah, so I've... What, what's your take on that? Do you like, do you think it's a cool thing or is it kind of a bit unnecessary or, or are we just getting, it, it, it does splitting make hairs it hard. at the moment? I think you're splitting hairs. I, I really don't know, but it doesn't mean that you're able to raise your nut very easily. Mm-hmm. My take on it a bit is that it might have been, you know, factory expedience that you could not have to worry too much about your nut. I, I had a Gretsch country gent which has gone to a motor mine in Hobart and uh, I had that refretted and uh, it came back with a new nut. I'm thinking, why has it got a new nut? Because it's, yeah. the, they're a bit of a string guide is, is sort of my... Yes. That's it, so, yeah. I don't mind, I don't necessarily seek them out, nor do I shun them. So yeah. that's something which I, I don't consider. Most of my, most of the Gretsch's I've had haven't been zero fret ones. As you'll see, I've got the, uh, that one there, the uh, the Tennessee Rose um, with just a normal nut and the Billy Bow is a normal nut as well. Yeah. And I've had duo jets with, with both. I think I've had a 62 and a 56 and I'm pretty sure they were both... I'm pretty sure the, no, the 62 might have been a normal nut. I can't remember now. Mm. There you go. That that was released into the wild uh, a good <laughs> 12, 13, 14 years ago, that one. so. Are there particular instruments you look back and, you know, think that was a silly decision? Did I or did I really 
make the most of that opportunity or like yeah. are there certain things that you've kind of gone, eh, maybe that wasn't a great idea? Well, it's – look, every guitar is one you're going to keep forever until something else that you want to keep forever more comes along, aren't they? And there have been ones like that. There have been some old Martins that I should have should have kept because they sounded amazing. Yeah. Um, there have been some silly little things that have been, you know, and I'm, I'm of an age or a maturity, I guess, where it's about good guitars, not American-made brand guitars. Mm-hmm. Um, and whilst I'm, I'm not, I do say it a lot to myself and to other people. It's an incredible guitar for what, for the amount of money, yeah, or for something you weren't considering to be good. So you know, twenty years ago, if you'd have said that I'd be super excited about getting like a Japanese Epiphone Casino, um, I'd have probably been super excited about it. It was an incredibly, you know, small spend on a guitar, yeah. But the casino behind me there is just look, it's it's fantastic. Yeah, everything is great about it. Yeah, there was a uh, I presume Korean made Epiphone Sorrento that a friend of mine mm-hmm. has with mini armbuckers, and it was a look. It was a you know it was a monkey to buy you know five hundred bucks, and it was seemed re- not only did it seem really good buying at the time, but when I've taken it home and played it, I've gone, God damn, there's so much that's good about this. It sounds great on the couch. It's plugged in. It sounds really, really good. Yeah. It was, it was on the more uncontrollable side of um, hollow body tone uh, as opposed to that, the, the yeah. Gretsch that I'm pointing at. And that was, you know, things like that surprised me. Yeah. But there are, you know, everyone has guitars that they shouldn't have sold or they've had or, or, you know, or even I guess in a pure business sort of sense. And look, you know, obviously I'm my catch and release program means that I can surround myself in guitars, and that my hobby in doing this and you know being part of a supply chain, I guess, for people that want these things, <laughs> yeah, means that um, you know, from a you can't look at them from a business perspective and go, well, you know, I should have kept that because that's now, yeah, you know, that's now not a, a five figure guitar; it's a six figure guitar. Or it's not a six-figure guitar, it's going to be a seven-figure guitar very soon. Or or that sort of thing, which is not the way that I think about this sort of thing at all. You're getting rid of them for a reason sometimes, whether it's because it's not just the right one for you. I I had a custom-coloured mid-60s Strat, which when I've bought it, and it was a a real investment. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a a lot of money. There's sort of no two ways about that. And I sold it really quickly because there's always a bit of nervousness about having something which is yes quite stealable quite yep. sort of breakable quite burnable quite yep. uh and you know it's worth at the time you know a third of what a house is so that was um yeah an odd feeling yep. um but i was more than happy to sort of release that into the wild because it didn't sound great it was an incredible collector piece but not sure. an incredible player piece yeah you know, one of the guitars that I really re- or I regret selling and keep thinking about, and still sort of haunts me a bit, is about twenty. Actually, I can I can time that it's probably sold twenty one years ago because it's my my wonderful eldest twenty first birthday today. Um, a nineteen seventy four. In fact, I sold it to get a guitar that I I can was on the phone buying um, when he was days old. <laughs> So I was buying a 62 Strat with gold parts and a slab board yep. and um, I can remember 
selling a, I, I sold a, uh, an Olympic white 1974 Strat with original staggered pole pickups that I can remember thinking at the time, geez, this is a good sounding Strat. I really like this. There's something that's really nice. And there was a real sort of sweet treble presence to it. Not sort of, you know, trebly by, but there was this sort of sweetness to the treble of that guitar acoustically and plugged in. It was it was phenomenal. It yeah. was perfect. It was yeah. really good. And I sold it at a pretty good um at, at like a it was a it was a good little turnaround, I guess, in that way. Um but to get in onto that strat and that other strat was good, maybe even great, but it wasn't as good as that one. It yeah. wasn't the magic thing. So Yeah. It's not about the uh yeah, the prestige or or value or something. It's about that little thing quite often. So, yeah, it's the it's the way that all the parts come together. Yeah, maybe the grain of the wood, or just just something clicks every now and again. Hey, something yeah. just like maybe it's the way that it's been stored or played. Yeah, for the last uh, however long. Maybe it's been in a nice humid environment, which isn't great for guitars in some cases. Yeah. Um, and it hasn't sort of really dried out dramatically at some point. Maybe that's it. Or they or or for whatever reason, um, you know, maybe the parts were just a tighter tighter and greater tolerance. You know, one of the things about the sort of um you know, the snake oil around a lot of parts is, you know, manufacturing techniques with tighter tolerances. Maybe there is something to mm. it. And, uh, you know, as a guy that's just stuck a um, uh, quite a special bridge on um, that SG there, I'm going, you know, having a, the white SG there, that um, did make it sound amazing, but it also introduced something which SGs can do, whereas, you know, the your upper frets get a bit banjo-y and yeah. you've got stuff that there's a resonant frequency sort of shift that yep. you might be... Um, Introducing that kind of has, I guess, some kind of weird phase cancellation that happens at a mechanical level. I sure. don't really know. There's something that's happened to that, which makes it sound great down the uh, sound great in a lot of ways, but not as great at the dusty end. Mm-hmm. So, but yes, uh, that that particular mob was the um, the locking tailpiece, and only did that because the original bridge slopped around in the um, in the things. But maybe it's just that real mixture of things coming together in a way which is either tied or at that wood's perfect resonant frequency. Yep. Maybe that's it. Yeah. It's all that secret mojo-y stuff that just it is. keeps us going, doesn't it? It's like it is. <laughs> sometimes and you pick look, it up we, and don't even look at the brand, don't even look at where it's from. Like You just pick it up and go, wow, that's yeah, something about that's that, that particular it's, guitar and then you realise it's like $100, you know. Well, that's it, yeah. Try to get the guitar and... It is, or it's um, like whilst we all want to talk about tonewoods and materials, I don't want to get into those sort of things because that is, you know, I've seen a lot of stuff um, that's been shared on the internet recently about stuff where people are really, really getting it wrong, I think, on on that, you know. Um, saying, so, you know, tonewoods are nothing. They are something. And yeah. there's, it's it's not just, you know, it's science. It's, and it's, not only is it sort of scientific, it's also experiential. I've had... Um, you know, Martin D18s and D28s from very similar batches, very similar eras, very similar times. Yeah. And the D18s always sound like D18s and the difference is, you know, a little bit of tonewood. Yeah. 
you know, the, it's the same guys on the tools, it's the same construction technique, it's the same bracing pattern, it's yeah. the same. You know, it's the wood that's different and mm-hmm. they sound, I don't know, they sound different. Yeah. I've had D28s from very small gaps in serial numbers, 400 apart, one Brazilian rosewood, one Indian rosewood. The Indian rosewood one sounded incredible and the Brazilian one sounded more. Just more in right. every way. Okay. And it wasn't something which, you know, I was hearing that was just, it sounded better to me. It sounded better to every single person that I played it to. Mm-hmm. And there's a way in which, um, if you, particularly if you're playing Martins, that you'll, we could be sitting like this and swapping guitars going, no, no, that one sounds better and change. Yeah. No, 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 that one sounds better <laughs> to me now. And it's not just because you're playing it much better than most people that we all know, it's that to hear that facing towards me sounds better. Yeah. It wasn't that. It yeah. was, oh, no, no, that's the one. Yeah, right. It was yeah, just no, no, can I get that one back, please? Yeah. And it's, yeah, they would have been made in exactly the same way, the same glues, the same guys in the tools, the same frets. Yeah. It's just that now that we're using a different type of rosewood. Yeah. And, you know, it's, there's, yeah, it's it's undeniable that Brazilian rosewood is something which is very sought after for various things in guitar making um, and it seems to be fetishised in a way but it's fetishised for a reason yeah. because it's it sounds particularly good and has a silk structure that, that lends itself to certain resonances and, and that's it. There's sort of no two ways about that one. I yeah. think, yeah, you don't need to have some guy with some ridiculous sort of air guitar thing going on <laughs> to uh, to try and disprove that one. Yeah. Yeah, fact. Let's not talk about Pressing that one. In fact, cut that bit out because I sound a little bit sort of <laughs> <laughs> conspiracy theory nut on that. So, but to go back really quickly to yes. to the trading post, just to bring that oh, yeah, up. Let's, let's finish on the trading post. Let's finish on the trading post. I come from an era where I was, you know, one of the things about living in Tasmania, and I've even talked to people about this today, is that I'm used to buying things that I haven't played. Yeah. What I haven't seen. I was buying stuff out of the trading post in the nineties that. Not only had I hadn't seen, I hadn't even seen a picture of. Yeah. That I'm just on the phone gauging the guy. Yeah. Whether he knows what he's talking about and, you know, whether he seems right, and, whether he seems and good. And it was verbal communication, you know. Verbal. I, I think that is so crucial to, to judging someone's um, knowledge about the instrument perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Um, and just the vibe, like the trustworthiness, like... Anyone can write an email and perhaps pull the wool over someone's eyes. Yeah, but well, to actually get on the phone and to talk to someone is well. For this guy with the Moss right that I'm I'm looking at today, I've he's actually sent me a message last night saying, "Look, I'll how about you call me?" And yeah. I thought, "Good, this this could go okay." I, I don't think it's going to work out with the guy. That's yeah. okay, but um, I'd rather talk to somebody. Um, you know, it's because uh, you know, there's risk in telling now. It seems so. There's, you know, great sort of pitfalls to be had where where you will sort of risk things. You know, back in the day for me with that, um, <clears throat> I discovered a, a loophole that not every, anybody else had really twigged to that much or not, not anybody had twigged to to the point where and had got to the point where they were buying stuff sight unseen um, that meant that I could jump on a lot of things before other people were. Yeah. Um, I foolishly let somebody else know about it um, who uh, uh, then sort of found a better loophole than mine, which was, you know, bribing somebody that worked in the trading post. <laughs> okay. 
Um, so their, their loophole was better than my loophole, loophole. By, by a damn stretch. So, yep. but um, it was, uh, you know, we it was just what we had to do. You know, you, you can't find a mice, right? You could barely find a Gretsch. You can't find, look, even, you know, getting USA Fenders was was really tough in the 90s. Yeah. You know, they when that sort of often used rarely comes up for sale thing, um, yeah, I'll give you rarely comes up for sale. I live in Tasmania, mate. Yeah. You just don't see these things. So I, yeah. I got very adept at buying things like that and trusting in that mm-hmm. and trusting that, um, you know, mean sticks would be good and, you know, it is um, it is part of what they do. That verbal communication thing too makes me sort of think too, you know, if – if, if I had to give advice to anybody that's interested in collecting guitars, it's talking to people. And if you're a gigging musician, if anybody ever comes up to you and wants to talk about the guitar you're playing, chat long and hard. Yeah. You know, I've bought guitars that way. And, um, you know, I, I very, very early on I bought a, a very, um, you know, I, I've... I've secured a very, very desirable instrument in that. And so in that same way that, and that was just a chance sort of thing, I really like your Gretsch. I said, thanks, man, they're really nice guitars, aren't they? What do you think? Do you want to have a little play in it? He said, yeah, I've got an old one. And so yeah, that sort of started that. Yep. If anybody wants to talk about your guitars with you, have the chat. You might have a thousand conversations where it's... Not fruitful. Yeah. You only finishes need to, that night. You yeah. only need to have one conversation yeah. where it is. Yeah. You know, I had that with a, a .NET 335, so proper .NET 335. So, and that conversation came through me playing guitar and them having a chat with me about it. Yeah. And um, no matter how, you know, everyone's uh, worthy of your conversation when you're playing out somewhere, I think, at every yeah. single point or if you're carrying a guitar case and somebody stops and says, hey, what's in the case, always have a chat yeah. if you've got time because yeah. you never know. They might be trying to work out whether you know what that – whether you might know what they've got is. So, yeah. And just be kind. Don't rip anybody off. If somebody says to you, oh, look, I think this 335 is worth $1,000, say, look, no, it's actually worth a real lot more. Yeah. And, um, you know, be kind with that. Yeah, be, be kind and, um, you know, in the world of trading and selling and buying, like, there's some schmucks out there. Like, yeah. you just got to trust your gut and be honest. And, and look, um, a lot of them are coming friendly. to me trying to say, hey, man, no, you know, that's a, if there are a dime a dozen up here, then here's, you know, 10 bucks, buy me as many of them as you can. That's can right, you yeah. find me some more, please? Yeah, give me some more. <laughs> give me some more, champ. Come on. Good on you, matey. Yeah. Thanks, Ace. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> All of those things. Yeah. So, but it's yeah. Look, um, there's uh, you know, the only time that that's kind of, I've let myself down a little bit with that was buying a like an old um, an old Dobro, and I've just said to the lady out of the trading post, um, "Wow, it's old," and I've meant it in a incredibly positive way. So, well, yeah. if you don't like it, you can have it for this, and I've <laughs> and I, I I've sort of stopped and thought. And I was I was young at the time, and money was money was pretty tight for me. And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's one of the times that I I did not do. I didn't live by my own maxim there. So right, yeah. <laughs> wow, it's old. <laughs> wow, it's old. <laughs> and um, yes, uh, there was no subtext for her with that. So yeah, but um, yeah, it's one of those things that you've got to 
you know, if you if you deal with people fairly, if you're selling stuff, leave something in for the next guy if you can and yeah. do all those things. So, yep. you know, catch and release, boys. Catch and release. Catch yep. and release. Yeah. Well, thanks, Andrew, for letting me into your wonderful uh, cave of strings and tubes and transformers and... And stuff. What else and is mess. there? There's mess. Don't worry about the mess. Yeah, it's all right. I it's, don't uh, it's, all, it's, it's all here, isn't it, sir? Yeah. Thanks again for the chat. Absolute version pleasure. Version two. I'll, um, I'll back this one up and hopefully you... it reaches the, the good audience. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Cheers. Happy days. Happy days. I think the first one was better now that I think about it, but here we are. Thanks for listening, folks, to another episode of Say It With Guitars. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it around to your mates, leave a good review, and hopefully we'll see you next time.